Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Wildlife are under continuous pressure to adapt to new environments as more land is converted for human use. Studies have found, for example, that mammals increase their nocturnal activity within urbanized environments to avoid overlap with humans. University of Utah doctoral student Austin Green was part of a team that recently studied how human influence is altering the behavior of several species in northern Utah. He's going to join us today. In the second half, uh, we'll have a USU professor and extension wildlife specialist Terry Mesper in to uh, tell us what we can and should do to coexist with the urban wildlife. I guess second half, we'll talk about human adaptation, but in the first half, how animals are adapting. So, Austin Green, uh, welcome to the program. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Uh, congratulations on the paper. Very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, we were really excited to get that out. Uh, so you're a doctoral student there. What uh, what in? Um, so I'm studying urban ecology and wildlife conservation, um, and I actually just defended my dissertation last week. All right. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. So, so this is, uh, I'm not completely familiar with the process. Is this coming to the end now, the process? Yep, yep. So I think last Thursday was kind of the official, or last Friday was the official end to the program. So I'm now going to be moving on from graduate school and starting a, a postdoc there at the U. Oh, you start the postdoc, yeah. And then uh, eventually professorship somewhere, or what, what do you want to do? Um, well, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I would really love to kind of continue working in academia um, and to become a full-time professor. It's just, it, it's tricky to get those types of jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with that. That's, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, publish or perish, right? So this will help, the paper, right? So, um, Absolutely. So we're talking about how we humans, uh, you know, we're growing the areas where we live, right? We're continually pushing that wildland urban uh, interface. And so what do the animals that are there do when suddenly their habitats, I don't know, torn up or altered and a bunch of humans are there? I guess that's uh, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's really kind of the overarching question of like everything that um, I'm trying to study is what happens to wildlife when human beings start encroaching into more and more of their habitat? Are they allowed to basically kind of grow and adapt to those types of environments, or are they kind of forced out? And so that was really what we were looking at with this particular paper is, um, in this case, we have a good idea, or at least a decent foundation of which species can adapt to urban areas and how they use the space within an urban environment. But we didn't really know a ton about how species behave in these environments. How are they altering their behavior and if they're not all altering their behavior in the same way, is that actually leading to differences in interactions between species-species pairs? And that's really what we were interested with this paper. Yeah, very interesting. Before we jump into that, um, you mentioned uh, in, in the paper that um, you know, especially uh, harder for terrestrial mammals, right? Birds can, I guess, fly away, <laughs> right? Uh, um, so uh, tell me, uh, I guess we know so, we know a bit about this. It's been uh, ongoing studies. Um, there are some species that, I guess, tend to stay and maybe try to adapt and others who leave, are there? Yeah, so it's, it's typically kind of follows as you go up and down the trophic levels on a typical food web. So basically as you go higher and higher up in kind of the food chain, um, species tend to do worse in urban areas as you go higher up that food chain. So kind of think your top predators like gray wolves or in this particular um, scenario here in Utah, mountain lion. These species tend to avoid urban settings um, really as much as possible. So at the end of the day, their distribution is really following their prey. So they're going to follow mule deer um, and they're really going to try and avoid uh, human used areas. And so what that does is it actually provides opportunities for other species that may have to compete with these top predators to actually occupy urban environments and really get a foothold in these environments, whereas they're not really subjected to that same type of interference competition from larger, more apex predators. And so a good example would be like a red fox coming into urban areas. Red fox actually prefer urbanized areas in a lot of different locations than kind of the surrounding undeveloped land. And then um, in this particular case, too, we have northern raccoon or raccoons. They really do come into urban areas and actually only um, occupy certain areas in the West throughout um, 
this portion of the country actually living in cities and occupying urban areas. And so they're actually urban adapters where they prefer to live in more urban environments. I think this is just parenthetical as well. Uh, I think I read correct. Well, you can tell me if I read correctly that uh, I guess some deer come into urban areas to escape predation. Yes, yes. So there's this idea, it's called this human shield hypothesis, that if um, your top predators, in this case the Sphinx Mountain Lion um, here in Utah, are not able to occupy urban environments, if their prey, in this case mule deer, um, are able to occupy these environments, then they've essentially escaped um, the pressures of predation. So now they do have to kind of manage that trade-off because now they have to occupy an urban environment where they're now subject to human-caused mortality risk. But they've essentially escaped predation from their top predator in a more, like, undeveloped area. And so, yeah, there are, there's quite a bit of evidence to support this idea that certain species occupy urban areas to actually kind of get a shielding effect um, from humans. Yeah, here in Logan, uh, you know, I encountered deer, I don't know, at least weekly, you know. They're, oh, yeah. be, you know, on Old Main Hill on the university and uh, out in fields, they're, they're, you know, I understand they're urban herds that just uh, stay in the urban areas. Um, so let's talk about adaptations. So you mentioned um, earlier, the abstract at least here, that uh, uh, one way that mammals uh, occupy urban landscapes is by maybe increasing their nocturnal activity. That's to, I guess, get away from synchronized with humans. I guess they're in this area, but they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be up when humans are, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, mammals have a lot of strategies to adapt to these specific things. But when you kind of think of, uh, like, an animal's circadian rhythm, like, we have a circadian rhythm that best adapts us to our environment. And all these different species have that same thing going on, where they're active during a particular part of the day, so that that best adapts them to their environment. So then when we throw them into a new environment, like an urbanized area, like a city, that circadian rhythm is actually subject to natural selection, subject to normal environmental pressures, and that's going to then shift that. And what a lot of research has shown is that for the most part, those shifts typically occur with species becoming more nocturnal. So they become more active during the nighttime, and that seems to be directly related so, like you said, trying to avoid human beings. Mm-hmm. So, uh, reading from the paper, um, there have been studies apparently that studied this, you know, nocturnal or diurnal, um, uh, the, the activity uh, adaptations in single species, but uh, your study wanted to study several species, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And so there have been tons and tons of case studies really kind of throughout the world showing this shift, showing the shift in activity to becoming more nocturnal, as animals were occupying urban environments, but there were still kind of species-species differences, and no one had really looked at the conglomerate of species. Let's look like an entire wildlife community. Are they all shifting in the exact same way? Because that's kind of what previous research was kind of hinting at, is that everything's just becoming more nocturnal. And so what we were really interested in is seeing if that is actually the case. So instead of just doing a single species study and then saying, well, that probably applies to everything else, Let's actually just use a really large data set to look at all the species that occupy these urban environments and see if they all shift in the same way. Because if they don't, and this is what we are really interested in, what happens if they don't uh, shift their behavior in the same way? That actually is going to alter how they interact with one another. Uh, so how did you do this? It was camera traps, right? Uh, what, tell me what that is. I think I know, but <laughs> tell me what that is. Yeah, absolutely. So. Camera traps, or a lot of people call them trail cameras, they're basically these passive motion-sensing cameras. And so you can set them up in, you know, really anywhere, in your backyard, out in the wilderness, you name it. Um, And what they're going to do is they have two triggering mechanisms. They have a heat sensor and they have a motion sensor. And so the camera's constantly taking kind of a snapshot of the environment through, like, a heat-sensing thing. So if you've ever seen the movie Predator and you see that heat vision, kind of think that's what's going on with the camera – Anytime that changes, that triggers that uh, mechanism in the camera. And then if something moves by, it'll trigger it as well. So it's really good at picking up animals with body heat because they trigger that motion sensor and obviously they're moving around. And so it makes them really good uh, study design tools to look at terrestrial mammals because they have their own body heat, they're endothermic, and they're going to be moving around on the ground. And so that's what we did 
was we started a community science camera trapping project called Wasatch Wildlife Watch. Um, and really, this is a major shout-out to the amazing community scientists that make this pro- uh, project possible. But we had about 1,000 citizen scientists set up roughly 350 sites for this particular study. And this was throughout Salt Lake Valley and kind of the central Wasatch Mountains, which is the uh, Uinta-Wasatch Cache National Boundary that's contained within Salt Lake County. And so we set up these camera traps, and we used just the photographs from the cameras, because they each come with a date and time stamp, to document when species were active across these two areas. Yeah, I'll echo that uh, shout-out for Citizen Science. That, that's a... It's a powerful, it's a powerful thing. People get to participate, right? And that's a nice thing. And then scientists get to benefit. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's been an amazing program. We're on our fifth year now, um, and we've just had some pretty amazing people contribute to this. We've had certain volunteers hike over a hundred miles a year to actually get to and from their cameras. So we've had some pretty incredible people working on this. And just like you said, before I was a PhD student, before I started this project. I manned a network of about 15 camera traps or so, and that took just about all of my time in the summer for fieldwork uh, purposes. But now that we have this community science project, like I said, for this particular study, we were able to use 350 cameras. And so as you're saying, this is the, the cameras are in sort of this wildland urban interface, I guess. Yeah, they really kind of span the entire gauntlet or this entire gradient as we go really to downtown Salt Lake all the way into the Mount Olympus Wilderness Area and Red Butte Canyon, which is a federally protected research area. So we really have sites that exist in every single one of these kind of facets of urbanization. So this is a lot of data um, that you uh, – the data is what? What is it? Uh, pictures? Photos? Yeah, so they're photographs, and then we are able to actually put them through a program that then just extracts the species, the date, the time, and the location – and then all of that gets kind of fed into a spreadsheet, and that's when we actually conduct the analysis on. And so we're able to take photographs of wildlife and turn it into just basically kind of what we call detection data. So just it's, it's the same thing as if you were kind of walking along a trail or a transect and you saw a species and you documented it, uh, what you saw, when you saw it, and the time of day. That's exactly the type of data that these cameras are gathering for us. But they're able to gather it 24-7 um, for as long as we want. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you, uh, in the paper, you say you obtained uh, almost 20,000 detections of 33 mammal species, 70,000 if you include humans. So that's, uh, that's, that's a lot. Uh, what were you, in the end, what did you, which species did you uh, kind of zero in on? Yeah, so we knew we wanted to look at species that existed throughout that entire continuum. Um, and we also wanted to have species that interacted with one another. So we chose pairs that both existed in Salt Lake City, but then also in the Wasatch, and that we knew had some type of interaction. So the first one was kind of what we call a um, sympatric carnivore competition type of interaction. So we had striped skunk and northern raccoon. Those were two of the species we included. They were both miso predators or kind of predators in the middle of the food chain. So we included those kind of as a control to look at competition, and we had a rough idea of that. And then we chose predator-prey systems. In this case, we did coyote and mule deer, and coyote and ground squirrels, or rock squirrels. Um, And so these were five species that existed in both areas that we had enough data from and that we knew had some type of interaction. And so those were kind of the species we were looking for. We would have loved to include mountain lion um, in this particular study, but we just didn't have enough data from mountain lion in Salt Lake City. Because like I said, they really do avoid that area quite a bit. So um, you were looking at... uh how these species alter their behavior, right, if, if humans uh, encroach upon their habitat. So wh- what did you find? Um, yeah, so we did find that, like a lot of other studies, when we use all of the data and we put it all together, we see very similar trends to what other studies have found. That On the whole, as you go from a more undeveloped to a developed area, you're going to see an increase in nocturnal activity. And that's what other studies have found. So when we use all that data... That's what we found. But we also saw this really strange increase in midday activity. So this is the hottest part of the day. A lot of this data is gathered in the summer. And we found that really strange change in midday activity. And so what that was kind of insinuating to us is that maybe not all species are interacting in the exact same way. Maybe some species are becoming not, more nocturnal, but maybe there's differences in how other species are interacting. And so then we kind of parse that data from all of the species out 
into each individual, and that's when we really saw, uh, started to see some cool effects. Some species, like raccoon and skunk, they didn't react at all. They actually had the same activity patterns in the Wasatch compared to Salt Lake City. Um, they're already a pretty nocturnal species, and they're already pretty well adapted to urbanized areas. So we actually saw no change in behavior across those two species. But it was really interesting when we looked at the predator-prey interactions, and specifically when we looked at coyote and mule deer. So coyote, like a lot of studies have shown, became way more nocturnal as they came into the more urbanized area, and they almost became strictly nocturnal. Whereas in the Wasatch, they're actually what you call a ephemeral species, where they're kind of active at all times of the day. But with mule deer, that was when it kind of got really strange. They're typically a crepuscular species, so they're usually active during, like, dawn and dusk. But in the city, they became much more diurnal. So they kind of actually followed human activity curves. And so instead of um, trying to avoid humans, they actually became more active when human beings were active. Uh, interesting. I, I want to start with uh, raccoon and skunk. So you, I think you already said it. They're already pretty well adapted, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. Change. So we, we have really good evidence to suggest that, one, well, even here in Utah, raccoon are actually invasive species. And so they're not, they're not native here. Well, I wouldn't say they're invasive, but they're not native. Um, and so we know that they actually typically occupy urban environments and prefer and select those areas. So we didn't expect much of a change as we went from more natural to a urbanized area, because those species have already been um, subject to that selection from human beings, and they've already adapted their, uh, their behavioral patterns. So we didn't really expect a change, and we kind of thought the same thing with skunks. Skunks are also what you would call a human commensal or something that lives along human beings, and so we didn't really expect much of a change in that uh, in their behavior, and that's exactly what we saw. We didn't really see much of anything as we went across that gradient. Why do we, do we have a theory as to why coyotes uh, became more nocturnal as, as they it, became more urban? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, and so one of the big things is coyotes in urbanized areas, in Salt Lake City particularly, if they're spotted at all, it becomes kind of big news. Um, and they're usually persecuted. And so what that means is they could be removed or they could be trapped and sent somewhere else. Um, but basically, if a coyote is active during the day in Salt Lake City, it's probably not going to last in Salt Lake City very often. And so while there's, although there's reasons for coyotes to come into the city, there's resources, there's prey, they can access all of those. They really seem to have adapted to this particular area by using those resources when they're least likely to come across human beings. Because if they come across human beings, it's most likely not going <laughs> to result in a very good thing for them. What about and, deer? Uh, oh, go ahead. So uh, basically, so that's why we're thinking that that was um, what was occurring in Salt Lake. Why are they becoming so nocturnal? Yeah. Uh, so about the deer, what, why do we think they altered their schedule? Uh, schedule is the wrong word. I'm, I'm picturing a deer with a day planner. But uh, why, <laughs> why, why would they alter their behavior to, to match that of humans? Yeah, and this is, so a lot of this is going to be kind of our theory currently at the matter. We don't have a ton of evidence to suggest exactly what we think is going on, but we are looking into this further. Um, but there's actually been quite a bit of research on, uh, especially in recent years, in white-tailed deer populations, which are very similar to mule deer populations. And uh, what that information has been uh, showing is that fawning mule deer, so these are adults that have fawns with them, so they're accompanied by fawns, they're actively raising young, they actually become much more diurnal just in general. And so they become more active during the day just in general, and this is most likely in an effort to avoid predation because a lot of fawns, anywhere from 40 to 60% of fawns in more undeveloped areas are actually subject to predation. So it's a big stressor on their survival. And so if you can be active when your predators aren't, you give your fawns the best chance at surviving. And so what we think may be occurring, because when we looked at those changes across deer, when we actually saw increases in diurnal activity in Salt Lake City, it was directly related to whether or not coyote were actually present at that site in Salt Lake City. And so it was a really nice correlation between the two that was really insinuating the deer were coming or the, the deer were, that were in Salt Lake City were actively responding to coyotes being present and they were being more diurnal. And then on top of that, we really are now looking into whether or not they were being more diurnal to avoid coyotes, specifically because they were raising their young. 
And that would insinuate that deer in Salt Lake, these urban herds, have actually adapted to living in Salt Lake City and have actually adapted to giving birth to fawns in Salt Lake City by becoming active during the middle part of the day in an effort to avoid predation from coyotes. Because coyotes aren't going to take down an adult deer, but they do um, take down uh, fawns pretty consistently. Hmm. That's interesting. So you'll you'll be looking at this going forward. Um, do do we know at all whether you know such deer, you know, once they've adapted to urban areas, do they do they come and go, or are they pretty much stay in an urban area? Yeah, this is this is another really awesome question. I really want to get at this exact question, um, and we would need more techniques than just camera traps. We'd probably have to go out and GPS collar individual deer within an urban area and see exactly where they're going. Um, But my thought is that actually these urban deer are urban deer, and they're actually going to stay within these urban areas uh, year uh, year round. Because unlike more undeveloped areas where we do see deer kind of shifting with elevations as the snow comes and stuff like that, in urban areas, the resources are always present. They're just going to be in really patchy spots but they're consistent. And so if you're a deer that's adapted to an urban area, you actually aren't going to have a massive home range. You're probably not going to roam that much because you're going to stick in those little patches where all those resources are. Um, so if deer are you know, coming into urban areas and adapting in this way to escape predation, uh, you, you might think, well, we're going to have more and more deer arriving. Yeah, yeah, or at least the populations in Salt Lake City are going to grow or we'd, um, or are controlled by something other than predation. And that's kind of the idea here is that we really are now starting to think that we have these urban herds, we have these um, kind of wild herds, quote-unquote, uh, in more undeveloped areas. But what might actually be occurring is although that we have, you know, deer spread throughout the Wasatch, their uh, mule deer populations are going to be controlled by predation. Um, fawning is going to be controlled by predation. There's going to be other environmental factors. Whereas in a more urban area, we're probably looking at something more kind of along that density dependence, where it's just basically the population's going to swell because fawns are not subject to predation in the same way that they are in the Wasatch. And so what's really going to control those populations is just access to resources. If there's enough resources in an urban environment, then what this research is insinuating is that mule deer can survive here and actually survive very well here mm. in the more like city type environments. So uh, looking ahead, I'm sure you you have. We talked about some questions you're going to be looking into. You talked about the fawning activity. What uh, what else are you going to be looking at going forward? Yeah. So one of the big overarching questions we want to figure out, and this is part of just my research program in general, is how can we make cities is more sustainable or more wildlife friendly, where it's uh, human wildlife coexistence instead of, uh, you know, kind of a, a conflict or a problem. And so one thing we want to look at moving forward uh, is to see if this same type of trend that we're picking up here in Salt Lake City actually extends to cities across the United States and across Europe um, using this data set from the Snapshot Initiative or Snapshot USA and Snapshot Europe which are these coordinated camera trap surveys that actually uh, just started in 2019, and they gather data across both of these continents, Um, and so uh, across a lot of North America and then a lot of Europe, and they all are kind of situated in these areas that are exposed to human influence in some way. So we want to repeat this study, and we want to see if similar things are happening to the prey and the mule deer populations that are coming into the urban environments. Are we seeing similar things, or... Is it specifically based on how a certain city is structured? In Salt Lake, in particular, we have this really stark juxtaposition where we have the mountains literally in our backyard, and that's not going to exist everywhere that we go. We're going to really see this more continuous gradient as we go, you know, suburban, rural, and then exurban type of land as we go to other areas across the country, um, just thinking America in general. So we want to see if this trend continues throughout there, or if there's certain thresholds where some species can adapt and some species can't. Because at the end of the day, if we can identify those factors that make a city more or less sustainable or um, more or less conducive to human-wildlife coexistence, 
And as other areas continue to urbanize um, in more undeveloped uh, parts of the world, they can have this information in mind as they're building their city. So instead of just basically putting up a barrier and saying wildlife can't go here, they can take the information that we're able to garner from these types of studies and say, okay, this is how we can best structure this place so that we really kind of build that culture of human wildlife coexistence. We'll look for uh, for the results of the, those studies as we go along. Uh, if you you've just join us, we've been talking with Austin Green. He's a University of Utah doctoral student, and he was uh, uh, involved, uh, lead author of this uh, new paper on how wildlife is adapting uh, in northern Utah, Salt Lake area, uh, to human encroachment. Austin Green, thank you so much. Very interesting. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on, Tom. Thank you. And we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion uh, and uh, get into uh, some tips and how humans and wildlife can can best and better uh, coexist. Uh, we'll be talking with USU Professor and Extension Wildlife Specialist Terry Messmer. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our theme for this hour is uh, human and wildlife interaction and uh, how as uh, humans encroach further and further into uh, wildlife habitat, uh, how the, the, that wildlife is adapting. We talked about that in the first part of the program. Now we want to talk about uh, what we can do to, to best coexist with, uh, with that uh, wildlife. And uh, we bring in uh, USU professor and Extension Wildlife Specialist Terry Mesmer. Uh, Dr. Mesmer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, Tom, thank you for having me. Uh, so I want to ask you, I guess, first of all, what are the most prevalent uh, wildlife in, in some of these urban areas? Well, I, I had a chance to listen to, you know, the, 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 the previous speaker and and um, what he's talking about is, is fairly interesting, but but the the ultimate thing that's really happening in in a lot of areas in in Utah and other areas of the West that as our human wildlife interface that connection between rural areas and urban areas expands through housing and other developments, we we have a lot of areas becoming more urbanized and 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 with that. Uh, you know, we've got increasing outdoor recreation where people are spending more and more time outdoors. And so as this continues to grow, you know, it, it sets the stage for for humans and wildlife to compete for space and for other things. And so the numbers of conflicts will increase. Uh, the range or spectrum of conflicts revolving wildlife in urban environments go from some of the more... Um, um, catastrophic ones such as deer vehicle collisions to um, you know cougars showing up in in, in backyards bears uh, some of the more small mesopredators coyotes uh, showing up in areas where they're preying on uh, domestic cats uh, dogs and then again we have raccoons uh, striped skunks and a whole host of other species and some native species you know native birds for example that are uh, Causing problems with uh, with humans in in in, in urban areas. Um, a survey we did about uh, 20 years ago, kind of to get a handle on, you know, what what people think about this, and we, we looked at we were interested in not just finding out what people were were dealing with conflicts and 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 nuisance wildlife, if you will, but we were also interested in what they were doing to attract wildlife. And it was really interesting is the data showed that people were spending the same amount of money to mitigate uh, problems with wildlife as they were spending money to attract wildlife to their homes. And so what you're essentially trying to create is, is, is kind of, if you will, almost an unholy alliance where people want wildlife around, but when they become a problem, they want to be able to push the easy button and make the problem go away. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, yeah, it is unholy alliances, as you put it, uh, because we, you know, we we enjoy wildlife around, but we don't want the conflicts, right? Right, right. I mean, there, there are things we need to think about. You know, there were um, several years ago, the city of Salt Lake was was projecting to kind of use one of the vacant golf courses to create kind of green space, and then create areas where that. Uh, would have trailways or, or paths where wildlife could, could enter the city and leave the city. 
I, I talked to the, uh, the planners about that particular proposal and expressed strong concerns that what they were actually doing was creating a segue for increasing human-wildlife conflicts. And, and, and Tom, the, the conflicts occur because often humans lack some of the awareness about the dynamics and the things that can happen when they engage wildlife too closely. You know, for example, in recent years, we've seen reports or Zoom videos or Twitters or whatever where folks have gone up to national parks and they want to get really, really close to a bison. And so they stand out and they take their cell phone out and they, they want to get this really close up. Well, well, bison aren't, aren't accustomed to having human beings to be that close. And so ultimately, the consequences for the human uh, in, in those particular cases was not very good. So and, and, and so, really, it, it kind of focused on this whole issue of awareness. Uh, uh, we, in conjunction with the Division of Wildlife Resources and Hogle Zoo, have developed a program called Wild Aware Utah. And um, the program is basically built on that, is that we need to be aware that wildlife exists in these areas. We need to be aware about the things that we do intentionally and unintentionally to attract wildlife. And then we need to be concerned about sharing that environment with wildlife. Um, for example, uh, many years ago, um, it's been 10 years now, we had a study where we were looking at the effect of winter feeding on deer populations. And so we radio marked uh, a number of does uh, in areas that were being, where they were being fed and not fed. And then we tracked them over time. And what we found out is that the does that were being fed, they spent more time in closer association with humans than those that were being not fed. And the number one cause of mortality for our animals was not predation. It was deer vehicle collisions. Uh, so I, I want to uh, pause on that. Would, um, we should not feed wildlife? Is that, is that a general rule? When we, when we talk about feeding wildlife, there's variations in there. When, you know, the number one reason why, for example, we're having problems with bears in some of these urban areas is because of anthropogenic food sources. And, and so when we're talking about feeding wildlife, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks that do bird feeding and things along that line, and, and, and that can be appropriate if it's done correctly. But if it's done incorrectly and that feeding attracts other animals that might have uh, uh, different effects on that landscape and different effect on uh, you know the human dwelling that we need to be con we need to be concerned about that. Uh, feeding wildlife in general is a bad idea, and when I'm talking about feeding wildlife, I'm talking about feeding deer, things along that line, because what you can actually do is not only create a dependence but you can also create a situation where you can facilitate the spread of disease. Um, you know, in Utah and other states right now, we're dealing with issues regarding chronic wasting disease. And, and so, so the, the point I guess I'm trying to make, Tom, is, is, is we need to be aware of those consequences. All of us like to see wildlife up close, and we like that idea of that selfie, and we can put it on our Facebook, and we can share it with our friends with wildlife. But ultimately, we need to think about the consequences. One of the big concerns we have typically in the springtime is there are a lot of wildlife that are being, being um, uh, I'm going to say kidnapped, and that's probably not the correct term, but basically uh, during the spring is our peak birthing season for wildlife. They take advantage of all the resources, and so there's a birth pulse, and sometimes baby wildlife uh, end up in places and backyards and, and other areas where folks feel that they've been orphaned. And so in their attempt to uh, take care of the animal, they remove it from that natural setting and try to nurse it and try to raise it. And ultimately, that is not good for the wildlife and it ultimately could be bad for human beings, particularly if that animal, uh, as it grows, becomes aggressive uh, to humans. But again, the other part about it, it's illegal that if you've got a situation where you've got what you perceive to be orphan wildlife or, or wildlife out of place, the, your first call should be the, to uh, the local Division of Wildlife Resources Conservation Officer uh, or your county extension agent, and they can provide some guidance and assistance to make sure 
you do the right thing for the wildlife and you also mitigate the consequences that might happen for you attempting to take care of a wild animal. So I'm on wildwarutah.org. Uh, thanks for that uh, that suggestion. I, I'm, I've clicked on the mule deer uh, section here, and I just want to finish that discussion off. I guess I'm fascinated by the mule deer because I encounter them so often. Um, there, there, are, there are a bunch of them in, you know, in, in Logan. Um, so a couple of tips here, you know, even though they're not predators, you know, keep your distance. That's one of the tips here. And on your property, if you, you know, put a fence around your garden, it, it's going to have to be a, a tall fence. It is, but, but, but generally good fences make good wildlife. And so mm-hmm. I, I get a lot of calls from folks that are experiencing damage in their gardens. And so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a really, really large fence, but it can be strategically placed. I mean, there are several fences, for example, that we have used with property owners that are single-strand electric wire fences that are baited with a, um, a peanut butter, if you will. And, and those have been very effective as deterring large ungulates from using those particular areas. But obviously, we do, Tom, have a, have a growing population of, of urban deer in, in some of our urban areas. And so... Cities that are dealing with that have looked at a lot of different options and have worked in close conjunction with the Division of Wildlife Resources to develop a strategic management plan. And and that plan revolves around maybe even removing some of those animals in a a professional manner, but then also doing things to make sure that we're not attracting more animals to urban settings. you know, ultimately, the consequences of any area, these areas where we've got urban deer, um, you know, we do have property damage. Uh, we do also have increased deer vehicle collisions. And, um, you know, anybody involved in a deer vehicle collision in Utah, particularly given the, the cost of repairs, understands that that's, that's, no, that's no little matter. And so there are, there are things that we just need to be aware about. You know, basically, don't feed the deer. You know, um, in our work that we did several years ago in northern Utah on the deer feeding, we also did some surveys of, of residents. And it, our, our, our survey was pretty astounding. About 25% of the residents that we surveyed were feeding deer in their backyard. And when I say feeding deer, they were, you know, putting out apples. They were, I mean, they didn't have a, 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 a well orchestrated feeding thing, but, you know, they would go get produce and stuff like that. And, and again, they liked having the deer around, but the, the thing we need to think about is we need to go beyond our individual desires and needs and think about the long-term consequences for deer as well as for our neighbors. One thing I just mentioned quickly that I hadn't thought of, uh, you know, cover your window well because the deer can fall down there and injure themselves and cause damage. Yes, and, and that's, a, that, you know, and Tom, that's a good thing from the standpoint, not just deer, but young children. You know, if we've got a, you know, you've got a basement apartment where you've got a large window well, you know, putting covers on those types of things, uh, sealing vents or covering vents, uh, anything that you can do to exclude wildlife from getting into those particular locations is going to mitigate the risk of you having some type of conflict. Uh, what about the, the? There's a section here on wildware, uh, org, by the way. Uh, what about your pets? That's uh, you know your pets are going to encounter wildlife. What what do you do? There are, you know. One of the things that, and, and again, we're going to have, we're getting into the spring again. We are going to have a lot of folks going out hiking and and biking with their pets and things along that line. If you're out hiking, particularly in an area, make sure you've got that pet on a leash. Um, you know, I know there's a tendency you want to get out in the outdoors and let it run for a little bit, but but ultimately what you're doing is creating a situation, given that we live in wildlife country, that that pet can encounter something or it can draw, you know, a particular predator toward you, uh, you know. And so from that standpoint is, is if you're out hiking, you know, keep your, keep your pet controlled. Keep it on a leash. Um, if you're looking at, if you've got pets outdoors, uh, you know, dogs, you're feeding your dog outdoors, and, and, and take that dog food in at night. I mean, don't leave it out because that's a draw for skunks, raccoons, things along that line. Um, one of the things that has become a significant problem in a lot of areas of this country is feral cats. We have a lot of areas, a lot of communities that have spay, neuter, release programs for cats. And so 
living the life of a feral cat is pretty brutal. Um, you know, you, you you know you're looking for your food resource, but the other consequence of that is that there are studies that estimate that feral cats consume over 900 million songbirds a year, and so. You know, we, we, we spay, neuter our cats, our pets, and dogs that we have in our houses. And so uh, uh, at the same time, we, we want to keep them in close proximity to us. We don't want them roaming free because of the consequences that could happen if they engage wildlife. And so from the standpoint of, of dealing with our pets, think about how that pet might interact with wildlife and, and again, if you've got a cat, keep the cat indoors. You know, cats are, are animals that by nature are predatory. And so if you release them into your backyard and let them roam your neighborhood, essentially they're also going to be preying on, on baby wildlife. And, uh, you know, coming into the birthing season, the impact of one roaming cat in a neighborhood can be pretty disastrous on songbirds. You talked earlier about, uh, you know, the... Uh young wildlife, baby wildlife. I want to talk specifically about uh, baby birds. You have a section here on the on the website. I found a baby bird. What should I do? Hey, the, the, the big thing about baby birds, if, if you find a baby bird on the ground, more than likely the parents are fairly close to it. And, and, and baby birds leaving the nest, they're leaving the nest from the standpoint of, uh, of testing their wings. And so, but the parent is pretty close by and so from the standpoint, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the bird, depending on where it's at, you know, if it's in a, it's a, your backyard lawn area, just again, let it alone. Let it alone. And, and the, the parent will be close by, and they'll be able to take care of it. Uh, in cases where the bird persists for a, a while out there, you know, you might consider calling, uh, you know, uh, uh, a local zoo, you know, in in uh, in Logan, we have a local zoo that actually will 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 take orphaned animals and adopt them. But again, in most of those situations, uh, when we're talking about baby wildlife, the parents are fairly close by, and so by you picking up that animal and 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 thinking that you're going to uh, uh, take care of it and and raise it, you know, you're you're actually putting the animal at more jeopardy. Uh, you know, this last uh, Easter, one of the things in the Easter, for example, Tom, a lot of folks uh, like to give rabbits and ducks and ducklings and chickens and stuff as, as gifts for young people. And, and, and I know the novelty of the idea is very, very attractive and the excitement of a, of a young child to get that particular rabbit, but ultimately baby wildlife become adult wildlife. And so correspondingly, we've got situations happening here in some of our areas where folks have given these as gifts and folks are no longer able to care for them. And so what they're doing is they're releasing them to the wild or they might be releasing them to a, a, a reservoir or, or a local pond. And so we're starting to see in a lot of our local reservoir, we're starting to see a, a menagerie of different types of ducks that you know aren't native to Utah, but they're basically the consequence of folks not being able to care for animals that were maybe gifted to them, and then they decided to just to release it to the wild. Uh, the animals are not equipped to survive in the wild, and correspondingly, they can also cause impacts when they when they interbreed with native wildlife. What about uh, what you consider maybe the more dangerous predators? Uh, how can we? I don't know, reduce the chances that we're encountering, let's say, a mountain lion or a bear? Um, what, what to do if, uh, you know, if we round the corner? And... The, the, the big thing folks need to be cognizant of, and Utah is wildlife habitat. You know, we have wildlife that exists within urban areas, that move steadily within urban areas with the increase in the number of you know, cameras on, on doorbells and things along that line, we're starting to get more and more video footage of coyotes and cougars and, and bobcats in, in, in urban areas. It, it, more than likely, they were probably there in the past, but, but now we just have evidence of their, their being available. And the idea is to understand your circumstances, understand your particular situation. If you're out hiking, in an area, even a, a you know a park trail just beyond your your urban area, the chances of you encountering wildlife are, pro are probably pretty good. 
And so be aware of that. You know, when you're out hiking, um, take off the earbuds. You know, just walk, hike, or run in the areas. Do it as do it with with friends. And so the idea that you've got multiple folks, you've got multiple eyes, but more importantly, you can hear the sights and see, you can hear the sounds and see the sights of what's going on in your area, and then you can be cognizant of it. If, in fact, you encounter wildlife on a particular trail, you know, depending on the particular wildlife, the first thing you need to, is to stop, secure the children, pick up the children, make sure the pets are on a leash, and then slowly, slowly back away from that particular area. In most of these cases, the wildlife you encounter are just doing their daily activities, and you happen to encounter them on a particular trail. They're not interested in harassing you. They're, they're, they're probably not interested in preying on you. But if you have situations where you respond incorrectly, in the case of, for example, a mountain lion, and you, you start running, that could elicit the prey response where the cougar would be trying to chase you down as they would, for example, an animal that they were particularly preying on. There's some really good guidance on Wild Aware Utah about how to interact with wildlife, and the guidance goes all the way from spiders and scorpions all the way down to voles and turkeys, which uh, wild turkeys, again, are starting to show up in a lot of neighborhoods in Utah, again, because of that wildland interface dynamics. Um, I want to just talk briefly about avian flu. This, uh, this would uh, be a special concern if you've got chickens or something, right? Yes, we have a, we have a, a large number of uh, backyard chicken ranchers in, um, in Utah. And, and again, that's a laudable activity. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. But there are some things that we need to be cognizant of it. You know, Tom, uh, we recently went through COVID-19, and we're not done with COVID-19. COVID-19 is a zoonotic. A zoonotic is a disease that's, that's, that's it's, it's part of wildlife's makeup, but essentially it, it finds another, a, a mid-carrier, and then it jumps to human beings. There's estimates that there are about 14,000 zoonotics out there. Excuse me, 1,400 zoonotics out there. A common example of zoonotic is rabies. And, and so, so you talk about avian flu. And, and the idea that you've got a disease in wildlife that can jump to human beings, and so we need to be cognizant of that, that the things we're doing don't, don't cause that to exacerbate or to spread further. In the, in the case of chickens, backyard chickens, um, we also have problems with chickens in areas where they, they may not be as maintained um, as they should be, and then we have increase in rodent populations, and that can also result in some types of spreads of diseases. The bottom line is really surveillance, is that, is that if you've got an animal out there, and, and again, farmers and ranchers know about this uh, a lot because they check on their animals daily, they're, they're engaged with them. If there's some unusual behavior or some symptoms of some type of illness, the first thing they do is they separate the animal and they also then contact the appropriate medical authority, a veterinarian, to make sure that there's a diagnosis done and that we can, we can eliminate the particular spread. USDA Wildlife Services uh, is, is a, has a phenomenal program on disease surveillance and they are tracking disease outbreaks all across the country and making sure that when we identify a particular consequence of a disease outbreak, that we mitigate that particular spread of that particular disease. Anytime we're dealing with a pandemic or zoonotic disease, there are really three things we need to know. We need to know how many people are affected or how many animals are affected, the direction that it's moving, and we also need to know how it responds to corrective measures. And in the case of the pandemic, uh, those measures were masks and also uh, vaccinations. Well, we'll uh, much more to say, of course. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. But uh, Terry Mesmer has been with us, a USU professor and extension wildlife specialist. Uh, I'll mention again uh, this very helpful website, wildawareutah.org here. Terry Mesmer, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. And I appreciate everything you're doing to make help Utahns be more aware and more safe about uh, interacting with wildlife in urban and rural environments. Well, thanks for the work you do. Appreciate that. And we'll go out as we do on Wednesdays with uh, Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Utah has an insatiable demand for water, and the Bear River is one of northern Utah's most abundant sources. Despite this, 
Efforts to fully develop it have long been stymied by a combination of geography and politics. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. All of Bear River's natural flow has long been spoken for, but the Basin Spring runoff is an additional source of water that is largely unallocated to this day. A 1930s drought generated interest in developing this water, but negotiations dragged on for decades. After all, over its short course, the Bear runs through 10 counties and three states. By 1958, Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming managed to ratify a Bear River Compact, but a 1962 proposal raised fresh concerns. The question was not whether to develop the runoff for storage and irrigation, but rather, who gets how much? When the Federal Bureau of Reclamation proposed the series of dams that would make up the new Bear River project, it offered significant engineering expertise and substantial budgets. But the particulars led Idaho critics to characterize the project as a Utah water grab. The centerpiece of the proposal, and its biggest sticking point, was the High Oneida Dam. The dam would have inundated 12,000 acres of farmland in Idaho, with much of the water flowing to Utah. Despite the significant impacts, which included dramatically lowering Bear Lake, planners also overestimated public support. The Bureau of Reclamation had gotten used to clashing with environmentalists opposed to its dams, but in this case, the critics were largely farmers and ranchers who supported water development. Opponents saw the ways that the project would harm them, either by flooding their land or charging more for water, while communities in other parts of the basin would reap the benefits. Even in that heyday of Western dam building, the Bear River project never became a reality, largely because it failed to adequately account for all political constituencies. The Bureau of Reclamation admitted defeat in 1970, although the effort did lead to an updated Bear River Compact. Half a century later, the different constituencies in the Bear River Basin still haven't agreed on how to store all of its water. Utah continues to develop plans, with a new Bear River development project slated to be built in 2045. Find sources in past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.